Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today I'm welcoming back Professor Emily Oster. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Expecting Better, and there's a fully revised Expecting Better, which talks about why the conventional pregnancy wisdom is wrong and what you really need to know. She's also the author of Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool, and The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. The reason why I love her work is because she removes the noise from data to help all of us interpret from a completely objective standpoint. She's an economist. She's not a developmental psychologist. Her approach is really like, I'm looking at this because I understand how to read data and I'm going to help you so that you don't get driven crazy by noise that's out there. In honor of the 10-year anniversary of Expecting Better, we're having a conversation. And this one is for those of you who are expecting or have younger children and you're thinking about how to interpret all the information that's out there or if you're interested in data in general. If you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to write a little review. It always helps continue to get the podcast out. And of course, you can throw in a five-star rating. And if you have any feedback, DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. This is going to be probably the question you get every time you talk to anybody. But what are some of the changes in expecting better? Like what has happened in the last decade? So it's so interesting because I do, I get that question all the time. And you know, we've updated the book a few times. And so I can tell you a little bit about some of the big things that have changed. But I would say I have kind of two perspectives on this. So one is that science is always changing, right? There's constantly new studies. And so one of the things that's challenging about a book like this is you want to be about data, but you want to be about the newest data and making sure that we're adapting to, to changes. On the other hand, not as much changes as you think, because most of the time when a new study comes out, it's not that new. You know, it has all the same problems as the last study. And it just in general, we don't move knowledge in big ways that often. So there are a couple of things that are sort of big changes since Expecting Better came out. So one is the landscape for prenatal testing. So when I wrote the book initially, 
we were in a world in which the kind of non-invasive options for testing were very limited. They provided some information, but not very much. There was this very large innovation of cell-free fetal DNA testing in 2015 or so, which meant we can get a much, much more information about chromosomal issues from a simple blood test. So that's just like a huge technological change has completely changed how we do things. I would say the other really significant change is a very large randomized trial called the ARRIVE trial, which evaluated the relationship between induction and C-sections and argued that actually induction sort of in a routine way at 39 weeks actually wouldn't increase the risk of C-section. And that has changed to some extent how medicine is practiced at the end of pregnancy and how how many people are offered a 39-week induction, how much that is pushed. So those are sort of two things, but many of the things people wonder about, like, what about this new study about this? What about this new study about this? It's like, yeah, those kind of supported what we thought before, didn't really move us very much. And, and so something in there is a lesson about how much we overreact to all new studies, for me anyway. I totally agree. And I think what's so interesting is when people talk about developmental science and they're like, all the new science says the following ways of interacting with your child or this relationship. It's like all transformational. And I'm like, it's decades of science that's existed. And it's incredible to me that now people are like, there's a revolution happening in the One literature. of my favorite pieces of this is brain scans. So there's so much where people are like, well, we didn't we put people in a brain scanner and we saw that like their brains look different with this. And it's like, of course their brains look different. Where do you think behavior is coming from? Like what, what did you, like, I'm not even sure I have trouble sometimes understanding. Like, what did you think? Did you think their brains weren't changing anyway? So I, this is a piece where I just, I find like, well, that's not really new. It's not new. I know. No, it's so wild, but I think there's some combination of like brain scans yeah. make it feel real. It's fancy. And sometimes I like to tell people, you know, that they, they can do these things where they have people play like Tetris every day for three weeks and then they scan their brains again and their brains look different because of course, like you got better at Tetris, <laughs> but that doesn't, that's not good or bad. It just says like, there's a part of your brain that does Tetris. Actually, along those lines, can you just give like three questions people can ask themselves when they look at a new study, not in a journal, but like in a, an article? to just kind of ground them? So I think first question is, what is the method? In general, if something is a randomized trial, it's going to be better in terms of establishing causality than if it's not. So that's the first thing I would ask. The second thing I would ask is, how big is this study? Sometimes, even with a randomized trial, it'll be you know three people in the control group, six people in the treatment group. It's pretty hard to learn something from that small, that small sample. And then the third thing I always ask people is like, ask, what did we know before? You know, almost no study is appearing in a vacuum. And it's really, really valuable to step back and either in the article you're reading or, you know, even if you're really worried about this in some Google search to say, you know, hey, what do we know about this before? Is this actually new information? So those are the three things I always tell people to ask before they start with the, with the panicking. Okay, so I saw that you did a poll. I figured we should take advantage of that poll on what products people should or shouldn't get for sure. And I wonder if you could just give us the details on that. Yeah. So what I asked people was, what is the single best thing you got? And what is the item that was the biggest waste? And it was it was interesting. I mean, the the sort of single best thing, we got a lot of like 
baby bouncers, swaddles. You know, there are some things which people are very committed to, and many of them involve sleep, which I really understand. I don't think there was anything super surprising in that space. There wasn't like one thing where you're like, wow, I can't believe someone wanted that. I mean, people had all kinds of interesting stuff I didn't know existed, like, you know, different kinds of poop scooping items, you know, a baby butt spatula for putting stuff. I don't know. We did not have butt spatulas a decade ago. I just put the stuff on my baby with my hand. I did not know that was a thing. Yes, it's a thing. Many people mentioned the butt spatula. But on the flip side, we asked people like, what did you waste? What was a waste? The things that really came out as many people said they were a waste and very few people said they were good were things like cool outfits, like fun outfits for your baby. You, you don't need fun outfits for your baby. That was like the winner in terms of things that you're really, like, uh, and then also warmers, different kinds of warmers, wipe warmers, all kinds of you know, contraptions that, that make things you regret. You regret. You, because why does your baby need the warm wipes? That's the thing. You want your baby to get used to a cold wipe. <laughs> right. I actually think it's kind of the perfect concrete way of viewing how far we've gone, even though they have I guess, existed for quite a while. But just like, what does that say? (laughs) Even though I get it, I totally get it. And and you, I mean, it's, I do get it, but I feel that this interacts so extensively with marketing and with how we market to new parents. And we can laugh about the wipe warmers, but there's so much stuff that is sold as like, either this is how you're going to make yourself a successful parent, or if you don't do this, it's dangerous. And that I find, I think, hard. I think hard for a lot of parents because, of course, all of these things cost money and they cost time and they generate stress. And then you're wondering, like, am I ruining my kid if their wipes are cold? And I guess alternatively, am I ruining my kid if the wipes are warm because I've overindulged the warmth? And there are so all, many ways to ruin your kid. I mean, that's the message is right, constantly like you're probably doing it wrong. We're not going to tell you that you ought to do it right. But whatever you're doing, it's probably wrong. And now a quick word from my sponsor. Looking to budget your food expenses this summer? Get more bang for your bite with America's best value meal kit. Every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. No hidden fees. So you can count on great value week after week. Plus, you only pay for what you need with pre-portioned ingredients. So what does that mean? It means it's easy. And, you know, I'm always looking for easy for things that make it so that I can put more time into the stuff that's hard that I want to be doing that's hard. They also have oven-free meals this summer. Easy, no oven dinner recipes are satisfying, flavorful options like linguine with burst tomato and kale, a cantina-style shrimp taco bar, and a beef banh mi bowl that you can whip up after a long summer day. Again, no oven required. That is obviously very easy. Every plate provides plenty of delicious variety, so you'll never get stuck in a cooking rut with 26 tasty and affordable recipes that change every week, including 15 minutes or less dinners and oven-free recipes. It's easy to find something for every meal of the day. Plus, they have 22 sides, lunches, snacks, desserts. Come on, there's so much. I love mealtime with my kids but I don't love all the stuff required to make it a fabulous meal. And as you all know, if you're a regular listener, this is challenging for me. So I was really excited about every plate and I'm excited to share it with you. Get $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering the code 49humans. 
Get started with Every Plate for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering the code 49humans. That's up to $110 value. I love KiwiCo and I love that KiwiCo gives you an opportunity to provide non-screen time for your kids when it gets super hot out and being outside is just too much. They can come inside and have a kit that has everything that you need to have a hands-on experience to build creative confidence and problem-solving skills. KiwiCo delivers really fun learning for all ages, whether it's about science or sensory play, games, geography, you name it. Every crate designed by their team of experts inspires excitement, curiosity, and moments of discovery. And while I love free open play, I also love the idea of making it so much easier for you to relax, but not have to lean into screen time. So I love all of the art projects. I particularly love the Decoupage Globe. Choose something that matches your interests or your child's interests. There's so much to choose from. Just choose something that you know will ignite excitement in your child. KiwiCo delivers seriously fun, hands-on projects that inspire a lifelong love for learning. Redefine learning with play. Explore hands-on projects that build creative confidence with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line at kiwico.com slash RGH. That's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com slash RGH. The thing that I love about the work that you do is that you can very clearly help parents hear really through data, which is just so much harder to deny that there's a lot of stuff that's messing with our heads that's not even remotely related to science or reality. It's just about, I guess marketing is a great way of saying it. In whatever version marketing is, whether it's playground marketing or corporate marketing. Yeah. I, I For me, the value of the data in all of these spaces in pregnancy and early childhood is to give people a grounding to make choices that is something other than what they are hearing externally to give them something else they can feel that they can rely on and be confident in. Because I think if you have that and you're making choices that you feel you've thought about, that you feel confident in, it's much easier to take that confidence into the playground conversations. Not that you're going to you know, tell other people what to do, hopefully, but that you're going to, when you hear from them, it doesn't affect you in the same way. It doesn't come up in the same way. It doesn't generate the same kind of, kind of panic. And I think the idea is to to kind of use data to replace whatever you were doing before. Noise. noise. Data to replace noise. I like that. Data to replace noise. Data itself has noise, but it's no, a but statistical it's noise. I know. I guess that that would be confusing in inside baseball, but in the outside world, I think it's totally what you're doing. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. But of course, now I'm like, that is yeah. very confusing. That's okay. <laughs> my econometrics colleagues, my econometrics colleagues can come for me. It's all right. <laughs> so. A couple of things that really drive people crazy when they're trying to make decisions, I guess, in the perinatal period. What are those moments that you feel like, let me quiet this noise for you and make it either more clear or alleviate the idea that there's a right answer? I think one place is a lot of the 
dietary restrictions. And I want to put aside like like alcohol, which I spent a lot of time on the book, which is, but thinking about this, just the more basic, like, can I have deli meat? Can I have this kind of cheese? Can I have that kind of cheese? Can I have Doritos? Can I have this type of cereal? Is it okay if there's honey in the, like a million questions like this. And when I came to write Expecting Better, and I still really value this frame, I wanted to write it as why. I wanted to start that by saying, why are we worried? And then that lets you answer the question of which things should we be worried about, but also the question of when something new comes up, how should I think about whether I should be about it? In all of these restrictions that we put and all of these rules that we articulate in, in pregnancy, there's never really a why. There's just a list. And when we just give people a list, it it's challenging to make your own decisions, even about the things on the list. Forget about the kind of things on the outside that are tangentially related to the list that you're trying to, to work through. So I think that's one piece where I feel like we can be helpful. And I think the other place is in thinking through birth. I mean, if you think about kind of pregnancy being, you know, nine months of most of the time, you're just kind of doing it and going along. And, you know, if you're, if you're lucky and then at the end, there's this enormous event, this you know, huge thing that you do need to make some decisions about. And I think that's very daunting. And it is one place where people struggle to advocate for themselves. They struggle to understand all of their choices. And so a lot of the book is about that piece of it and just thinking about what kind of labor and delivery are you thinking about having? What are the choices that you're going to have? Who should you have with you? How should you advocate for yourself if, if you need to? And there, inevitably, that interaction is going to involve your doctor. And of course, it should involve your doctor, the very important part of that. But it's an opportunity to be in a place where you can have a more informed conversation, where you can be more of a partner and feel like there are choices that you're making and you understand what they are. So I think those are the two, two sort of general things I would pull out. And when you talk to parents or think about what's going on with parents or hear from parents, what are you finding frustrates you the most about the noise that comes around. And I don't want to knock noise that's coming from a well-meaning place. So it's a fine balance. But have you noticed repeating like things where you're just like, I wish people would stop saying that to pregnant slash new parents? The piece of it that frustrates me the most is just the number of mainstream media articles that are completely uncritically covering papers, which have a lot of problems, which we know about. So, you know, breastfeeding and test scores is like the one that comes up, you know, every third week. There is another study. It's exactly like all of the other studies. It has all of the same problems. You know, this is a topic I talk about a lot, but every time there is, you know, breathless, excited media coverage and from people who don't think about the limitations. And I think some of that is driven by the fact that if you write those articles, then people click on them. If you write articles that sound scary, people read them. And so backing up, you want to write articles that people click on. That's your job as, as a journalist to some extent. The authors want to write the articles that the journalists want to write about because that's you know what you that's what gets attention. So there's a kind of vicious cycle here, but I think from the standpoint of parents, these kind of the thing you're doing is bad. And you should be afraid because of studies is my nemesis. I would say. Right. Okay. No, I think that's actually a really good note for people is just like, if that's what you're hearing, pay attention. Like that's, 
there's something about that that might be a red flag. So I taught this some version of this at one point in my in my class, and I kind of had my students like sort of work down like I've explained to you why you know this study is just obviously like very deeply flawed, and it's not really even that complicated to explain why it's so deeply why it's so deeply flawed. And we talked about you know well, why is therefore this being you know covered in the Washington Post, and we kind of backed out. And by the end, one of the students was like. Well, I would click on that. So I guess like it's my fault. It's like, well, I don't think it's your fault specifically per se, but I think there is something in there to reflect on yourself. Like, you know, this is designed to to pull you in and doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention, but it does mean that we want to have a cautious note, even with our own reading of this, thinking about, you know, not everything that is that is coming out is thoroughly, completely vetted and correct. I talk a lot about my own breastfeeding journey with my first. And I knew very well that like the evidence that the many of these benefits of breastfeeding are very overstated and so on. And I still just like, killed myself to breastfeed because it felt like, you know, this is something I have to do. And it was really, really hard in those moments to be like, you know what, like actually I do need to prioritize my mental health. We do need to prioritize, you know, something other than, you know, trying to get someone who just basically hates my left breast to nurse from that side. Like, it's just like, maybe it's not for her. Maybe that breast is not for her. And it's okay. Well, actually, along those lines, and but by the way, that is really hard to, it is really hard. And it's so important that you have those experiences alongside the work that you do so that you can know what it's yeah. like to, to have the voice of reason and the voice of experience that can mess with I will just tell you, I once, you know, I, I write these books and like the subtitle of crib sheet is like better, more relaxed parenting through data or something like that. And I once met someone at a party and she was like, you must be the most relaxed parent. And my husband just like almost died. He was like, I don't think that she's the most relaxed person standing on that one, like, like standing in that like part of the driveway. Like it's it's like you, it's the opposite. It's literally the opposite of what you think. I'm so all about getting more healthy habits going. I'm just at that point in life. So I've discovered habit stacking. Habit stacking is the idea that you can build a major habit by thinking small enough to get started. So think, keep a glass of water and your DS01 daily symbiotic on your bedside table so you remember to take your symbiotic first thing every day. It's as simple as that. I use habit stacking to remember to write in my journal. I use habit stacking to remember to take my vitamins. I use habit stacking to remember to drink a full glass of water before I get my coffee in the morning, even though it's not my favorite thing. My favorite thing is my coffee. So I keep my CDS01 glass jar right by my journal next to my bed and my hand cream. So I remember to take it while I'm prepping to go to bed. Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a plant-based prebiotic and probiotic with 24 strains that have been clinically or scientifically studied for its benefits. You take two capsules once a day on an empty stomach. This could be first thing in the morning, 30 minutes before your first meal, or two hours after your last meal, which is why I do it before bed. It really helps with promoting digestive health, and it reinforces healthy stool hydration and ease of evacuation. <laughs> and supports gut ease, skin health, and even heart health. 
So start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash raising and use the code raising to redeem 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash raising and use the code raising. Have you ever been on the hunt for a new doctor and you ask literally everyone you know about their recommendation? You know, a doctor who actually gets you, listens to you, and makes you feel super comfortable? And then finally, after weeks of searching, you find the one. And not only do they do all that, but they're also near you. So you call their office, they have an appointment available, and then the receptionist tells you that this perfect doctor doesn't take your insurance. Wipe your tears away, put away the ice cream, head over to ZocDoc to find and book the doctor who's right for you and also takes your insurance. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments all online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed doctors and specialists, and you can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition you're searching for. Go to ZocDoc.com humans and download the ZocDoc app for free and find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's C-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash humans, ZocDoc.com slash humans, ZocDoc.com slash humans. That's C-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash humans, ZocDoc.com slash humans. What are the moments when you know the data and you're still like, mm, I can't hear it. Like I'm still conflicted right now. So it's interesting. I think the the thing I struggle most with in parenting is sort of consistency in limit setting, even though I talk all the time about like how, and I think part of it is just, that's very hard. And it, actually it's good for what I write yeah. to kind of understand that I spend a huge amount of time being like the most important thing about discipline and, and have it consistent, which is true in the data. I absolutely think but it's also important to recognize probably one of the hardest things to implement with your kid because when they're, you know, like, well, I just need two more minutes. So to finish this episode, I just have to find out what happens at the end of the episode or like, oh, I'm about to finish this Pokemon thing that, you know, you don't realize like you, you really have to have to draw those lines. And I, I struggle with that, you know, as much as anyone. I think I have an easier time when there's data to support something because I am sort of so used to that as a frame. So if there's like data on something very specific, I rarely question, sort of question myself. But when there is like, I know the data, but actually implementing this is up against my actual children. And that's, it's no good. Yeah. That's a really, also, it's not like the data, it says consistent, but it doesn't say like how to define consistent, exactly like interaction per, you know, moment where you have to set a limit. And, you know, is it like 80% of the time? Is it? So I think that's a really good point. Like if you could just know yeah, I need to do this five times to one time. I mean, all that stuff is kind of arbitrary in a way. So that could, even if you have the information and the data is there, it's not like in this circumstance, under this roof, with this exact temperament, this is exactly how many times you have to stick to this limit. Yeah. No, exactly. It's just, it's a hard, it's just hard. And it's, it's not direct. It's not a small thing. It's an ongoing fight. I just was talking with my little cousin who has a baby and she was showing me all of the movement forward in baby led weaning 
And she was kind of trying to convince me that this is absolutely the only way. And I was trying to convince her that there can't be an only way, particularly when it comes to food, because we have a giant world out there where there are a gazillion ways. But I was just thinking, if it's going to make you completely neurotic, it may very well quite a bit backfire. And she said that the entire conversation with all of her peers is how critical this is. And so I was like, well, maybe I'm missing something. So I'm going to ask Emily. (laughs) There are a lot of claims made about baby-led weaning, including that it will lower obesity rates and improve, you know, kids' relationship with food. None of those things are well-supported in data, as you might imagine. The relationship between the choice to do baby-led weaning and your demographics is pretty strong. And so the fact that we see, you know, potentially like lower obesity rates is really almost certainly reflective of demographics of the families and not the sort of choice of how to, how to feed. On the flip side, you will hear people say, well, you can't do this because kids are going to choke and this is very dangerous. And that's, that's also not true. So it actually isn't the case that there is a higher rate of choking. Choking is a risk for kids, but it is much more commonly a risk if you have hard candies or nuts or meat bones. There's a bunch of ways that kids choke that have nothing to do with baby lid, baby lid weaning. So this is, as you say, I, I think there's many right ways to do it. And I think part of what people have been drawn to with baby lid weaning is that it is a specific way to introduce solids. Actually, the introducing solids is it's like a challenging practical issue because even if you have the idea like, okay, let's start with rice cereal. That's like, okay, that's one time. You give them the rice cereal and like, then what? Like, what? What happens after that? And the guidelines are very are very vague. And part of the, they're very vague because actually there's many good ways to do it. But in those moments, it's overwhelming sometimes to figure out how to do it. So I think the success of baby led weaning and of programs like Solid Starts, the people love Solid Starts. And I think Solid Starts is great. Yeah. What I love about Solid Starts is it's like, here is what you do. Here is a hundred day plan, specifically what you should give your kids. And, you know, they do some nice science-based things like you introduce allergens early, which is important. So there's a few things in there that I think are really very, very science-based and it's a great program. But the reason to like it is that it is something people can do and it's straightforward and it works. Not because if you don't do this, your kid is going to have some problems or never like food later. So again, there's like this, such a tendency in these spaces Instead of just being like, this is a great option that might really work for some people, and here are some of its you know, benefits or advantages, to be like, if you don't do this, your kid's going to be bad. But I think the bottom line is, if something works for you and it's a wonderful program, how great, but don't translate that into, if it doesn't work for you, that your kid is going to be screwed exactly. up. And I think it's hard when we, you know, we give sort of advice to other parents. We often love the things, the choices that we have made. And there's so much of a temptation to to convey, like, like I love this so much, so you have to do it. As opposed to like, I love this so yeah. much because it works really well for me and it's an option you should consider, which is so rarely the tone that we're conveying out to other to other people. I noticed. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. But how nice does that feel? Like even the way you just said that, if everybody just reframed how they gave advice into that way, it would make it feel so good. And we would have like so many sister mothers around that would like be there to help and be supportive. And I think that's that alone. I feel like that could be another bumper sticker. What are your next questions? 
so I would like parent data and that's the books and that's the newsletter to be a an ongoing resource for parents who want to use data in their decisions. And I think most of what I focus on when I think about what's next is, you know, what are the questions we still haven't answered? And some of that is on the more minor side, like, you know, which of the diseases of childhood have I not written a long form piece about? And some of it is, is bigger picture, you know, what are the areas that we haven't yet gone into enough that people are, that people are asking about. But I think I have a great opportunity right now to make this platform responsive and to help people navigate these things. And, you know, I still want to be the place where like when you read that panic headline in the New York Times, I want this to be the place where you say, well, I know Emily's going to tell me what to think. Like I, Emily's going to tell me the data on this. And so I'm going to wait. And before I panic, I'm going to wait and see what, see what she says. And that's what I want to be. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.